Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we describe a trail that goes village to village along an undeveloped coastline. There are sheer cliffs and golden sandy beaches. It follows footpaths locals have used for centuries to access fishing spots. There's some tough hiking on sand mixed in with hiking coastal bluffs. Surprisingly, this hidden gem isn't in some obscure corner of the world. It's in continental Europe. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Jota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail in the Alentejo region of southwest Portugal. Today, our guest on the show is Sabrina Brett of Moon and Honey Travel. Moon and Honey Travel is a blog on trekking trips primarily in Europe, but also in some other parts of the world. Sabrina and her partner, Kati, have hiked lots of really interesting and beautiful routes all over Europe with kind of a focus, though, mostly on uh, the eastern Alps, Alps of Central and somewhat Eastern Europe. Uh, which is interesting because today we're going to be talking about something entirely different with Sabrina. We're going to be talking about Portugal on the western coast of Europe. Many of the trips that are on Moon and Honey Travel are less well-known than some of the more popular routes in Europe, and that's what really interested me about their website. Sabrina and I will talk more about that on today's show. I'm excited about today's show because it's our first venture into Europe I want the show to be about the best of backpacking and trekking that's out there, and I want it to have a broad reach. We've been to North America, and we've touched on South America with the episode about the Kilo Toa Loop in Ecuador. Now we go to Europe, where there's a ton of great trekking routes that we will come back to over time. But we start in Portugal, one of the oldest nations in Europe. Portugal was founded in 868 when it was part of Al-Andalus, which is Moorish Iberia, at the beginning of the Reconquista, when the Spanish began taking the Iberian Peninsula back from the Moors who had come up from northern Africa centuries before. The Kingdom of Portugal began in 1139, and in the 15th and 16th centuries, it became a global maritime power. As I'm sure you know, they discovered Brazil, which was around 1500, and held that uh, territory for several hundred years before Brazil became independent. And as a result, there are hundreds of millions of people who today speak Portuguese. Portugal was a monarchy until 1910, and its modern democracy started in the 1970s. Currently, there are about 10 million people that live in Portugal. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the Alentejo region of Portugal, which is in the southwestern part of the country. Alentejo means beyond the Tagus River, which means south of the Tagus River. So it's the region that's south of that river that uh, goes through Portugal. The Tagus is the longest river on the Iberian Peninsula. The history of the Alentejo 
region's inhabitants goes way back. And when I say way back, I mean really way back. There is history there of inhabitation from the megalithic and neolithic periods. There's a site called the Almendris Kromlech, or Kromlech, which is a stone complex from as old as 6,000 BC. So we're talking 8,000 years ago. There were these structured meniers, which are standing stones organized in a particular pattern. And it's the largest of these sites on the Iberian Peninsula. There are 95 stones in a circular pattern. It's actually more than one circle. There's kind of this larger oval and then a smaller circle. In any event, what this means is that this part of Portugal has been inhabited for a long, long time. After the Neolithic period comes the history that we all know much better, which starts with the Romans, who had conquered this part of Portugal and, in fact, all of the Iberian Peninsula at one time. After the Romans came the Visigoths from the area that is today Germany. Then, of course, the Moors from North Africa. Then the Spanish uh, as part of the Reconquista. And then later the Portuguese who asserted uh, control over this part of the Iberian Peninsula that later became Portugal. The Alentejo region has only 759,000 people which is the least populated part of Portugal. So think about it this way. It has one-third of the territory of Portugal. So if you look on a map, Alentejo is a pretty large section in the southwestern part of Portugal, but it only has 7% of Portugal's population. It also has the oldest population, meaning the population with the highest average age in Portugal. And it has been undergoing somewhat of a population decline as people leave for economic opportunity and other reasons. The Alentejo is a dry and relatively flat part of Portugal. It produces two-thirds of the world's cork. And today it's uh, become kind of a wine region, sort of an affordable Tuscany, if you will. The Alentejo really has no major cities and very few luxury resorts, which I think is a good thing if you're a trekker. It's really authentic Portugal. It's very rural. Its capital, Evora, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and has a first century Roman temple that's very well preserved and worth seeing. And so if you come to the Alentejo region of Portugal, you're kind of walking into history and seeing what Portugal was like and what other parts of Europe might have been like many, many years ago. So why come to an area to go trekking that kind of seems like a backwater of of Europe in the eyes of some. Well, if you're a trekker and you're looking for some solitude, some natural beauty, and you don't want to be in a gigantic city, all of the things I've been talking about are things that are really attractive to someone looking for those features. It's remote, which is a good thing. It has low population density, which is a good thing. It's authentic Portugal, which is also a good thing. And southwest Alentejo, where this hike is along the coast, in Vicentine Coast Natural Park, has amazing beaches and dramatic cliffs, and is essentially a 150 kilometer or almost 100 miles of the last wild coast 
in Europe. And for all of those reasons, it's worth seeing. A little bit of a word here on pronunciation. I don't speak Portuguese, and I don't believe Sabrina does either, my guest today. And so we'll do the best we can. I tried at the outset to pronounce the Jota Vincentina in my best attempt at the correct pronunciation. So rather than continually messing up the pronunciation, I'm just going to refer to it with the American English pronunciation, Rota Vicentina. So we'll go with that today. So although this area is a wild coast with really just some small villages for where there has been traditionally fishermen for centuries, uh, there are also a couple of things that are of historical interest. There's a couple of uh, forts worth seeing. There's the Fort of Peseguero Island, which is off the coast of Porto Covo, which is the town where the hike begins. This is a fort that was constructed beginning in 1590. They brought in an Italian engineer to build this fort off the coast to protect this area from pirate raids. There were pirates coming up from Algeria. There were Moorish pirates that were coming up and continually raiding the coast. And so they built this fort and also the Sao Clemente Fort in Villanova de Milfontes, another one of the towns along the route. That fort was constructed between 1598 and 1602, built by the same Italian engineer. And that one is fairly well preserved in the town of Villanova de Milfontes. The fort of Peseguero Island is in ruins, um, but is interestingly also built where there had been uh, Roman ruins before that. So that one you just see off the coast, but the Sao Clemente Fort in Villanova de Milfantes can be seen up close. So with that as background, now let's talk with Sabrina Brett of Moon and Honey Travel about her trip on the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail. Sabrina Brett from Moon and Honey Travel. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, Jeremy. Nice to meet you, and I'm happy to be here. So tell me a little bit about Moon and Honey Travel. Sure. So Moon and Honey Travel is a hiking blog for travelers. It's really for anyone who wants to integrate hiking into their travel plans. And uh, so we might mostly write trail guides, destination guides, and like hiking-themed itineraries. How did that come about that you put that together? Yeah, so... My partner and I, uh, my partner Kati and I were living in Cologne, Germany in 2016, and we wanted to get to know the region. And um, as we were re researching and planning out trips to places like the Eiffel and the R Valley and the Upper Middle Rhine, it was really difficult to find information in English. And so after months of like doing a lot of regional travel, I decided, or I felt compelled to share what we learned because I wanted to help other English speakers discover less obvious places to travel in Germany. And then later we primarily focused on hiking because that's how we structured all our travel plans. And that's what we were mostly doing. That's exactly how I like to travel. I always try to, <laughs> I always try to build in a trek or a hike of some kind into wherever I'm going. Mm -hmm. So what kind of trips are you, is it mostly trips in the Alps that you're focusing on and moon and honey travel? Right now we're based in Austria right now. So primarily focused on the Alps and hut-to-hut -hut hiking. 
Okay. And you're, you live in Austria, but I can't help but noticing you have an American accent. So where are you from originally? I am originally from California, from the central coast, Monterey Bay. And oh, okay. yeah, I'm in Austria because Kati's Austrian. And yeah, we thought it's a great base for hiking. Great. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Alps, I think, toward the end of this interview. But let's first talk about our primary focus today, which is on a different place, which is the coast of Portugal. So you went and hiked the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail. How did you learn about hiking on the coast of Portugal and the, the opportunity there? We were actually, a couple months before we hiked the route, we were in Cornwall in England, southwest England, and hiking along the southwest coast path. And that was the first time I realized that you could do a multi-day hike along a coast. And so I was really intrigued by the idea. And I think I just did a few Google searches and of you know best coastal treks in Europe. And the Fisherman's Trail is something that comes up again and again. So how much of the uh, Southwest Coast Trail did you hike? We only did day hikes along the route. So um, yeah, and we really want to go back and do like a a good chunk of it. Uh, That one is on my short list. And and it's, I can have to tell you the reason is that my last name is Pendry and it's from that region. (sighs) And I've never been to that region. So I'm really interested to hike there. It is gorgeous. So once you had thought about doing a coastal hike and you found this hike online, I mean, why did you pick that over other hikes? It just came up as something more interesting to you than other possible coastal hikes? Well, we were planning already on going to Portugal. So we, ah. we do some pet sitting around a lot. That's how we travel long term. We kind of string together sometimes some pet sits. And so we had accepted a pet sit in Porto for a few weeks and we were going to be there already in October of last year. And so we decided to do, we could, it was possible to do this trek right after, um, which is really exciting because our hiking season's usually restricted to July, August, and September. And so this is a hike you can do in late fall, in spring, in winter. What did you do to go about planning the hike? Planning is super simple. All we did was we booked our accommodation along the route. And shortly before starting the trek, we booked our shuttle from Lisbon to the trailhead. And so one of the things I noticed about this route is even though the Fisherman's Trail is is really supposed to be a fantastic route, there's also, it connects to a longer trail called the historical route or the historical version what was the thinking and was it just a matter of time you had available or why did you decide to hike the Fisherman's Trail versus incorporating some of the additional distances out there? I think when we were looking at the historical way, you know, it's comprised mainly of rural trails and it's an interior route and the scenery just didn't captivate us in the same way that the coastal route did. And you hiked the trail with Kati, your partner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just us. Are you guys always hiking the trail? Whenever you're hiking trails for Moon and Honey Travels, is it the two of you? Yeah, it is. Does she work on the blog as well? Uh, she does. And she does the harder things like figuring out insurance and a lot of the logistics. <laughs> ah, okay. You get, to do the, you get to do the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, you're doing the writing mostly? Yeah, mostly the, mostly the writing. And we're planning on translating the website into German. So she'll, she'll manage all of that. Oh, great. Okay. All right. And so you mentioned that this is not necessarily a summer hike, like the hikes in the Alps. So when did you actually do this hike? You said it was November? Yeah, we hiked it in November, early November. Okay. And in general, for someone who's planning to hike this trail, what should they be thinking about as far as when to hike it? So they should avoid July and August at all costs um, <sighs> because it is way too hot. It gets up into almost 40 degrees Celsius. And it is also the time that local 
port or the Portuguese kind of go to the coast and these towns just like swell with people. So the best time to go is actually spring, like end of March to end of May and then fall, September and October. November was fine, but it was a bit overcast and it was also really humid. And I don't know if that's every November, but it was the November that we hiked. And oh, a lot of places to eat are closed already in November for the holidays. So what do you think? Do you think they close probably at the end of October or something like that? I think so. Or early November. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there were, right, places so make- that, yeah, there were places that were open, but there were some people had recommended a certain restaurant and it was already closed. So that was a bit disappointing because we really like to eat <laughs> when we hike. <laughs> I also read that the in the winter, there's probably a lot of rain. So maybe spring and fall are best. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And this is Southern Portugal, right? This yeah. is not... Okay. So this is, it's, it is going to be really hot in the summer. It's going to be really hot. Yeah. Okay. And so what is the total, how far is this hike? What's the total distance on this hike? So the total distance is 76 kilometers and it is broken up into four stages and that is 47 miles for Americans. And yeah, this is the original Fisherman's Trail is four stages. They have now since extended it. So now um, it is a 13 stage trek and it actually starts in Sao Torpe and it ends in Lagos. So anyone, I mean, most people will probably just do the four day trek, but if you wanted to keep hiking, you could. Now, how does that extend it? Does it extend it south? Yeah. So it extends it one stage north and eight stages south. Oh, wow. So it's a much longer trail if people mm-hmm. want to do the, the extended version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for the four day trek that you and Kathy did, which is the traditional or the original Fisherman's Trail. What I read was that the total ascent was about 1,178 meters and about 1,181 descent. So not, a, I mean, it's up and down somewhat, but not huge up and down, right? This is a coastal hike with a pretty reasonable terrain. Yeah. I mean, you won't really notice the ascending and descending the uphill and downhill. Only the last stage, it's a, like probably 300 meters of ascending the whole day. But yeah, generally it's quite flat. And so what is the gear you need to do this hike? I mean, this is a hike where you're going hut to hut, um, you know, you're, or not hut to hut exactly, but you're going to hostels. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not camping, right? No camping. Camping's prohibited or wild camping's prohibited along the route. There are campsites, but they're not recommended because they're not positioned close to the ends of stages. So generally, oh, okay. yeah, people will stay in hostels or guest houses in the coastal villages along the route. And so what does that mean as far as gear that you're taking for this trip? Yeah, so gear, I think from the onset, you can decide whether you want to take advantage of a baggage transfer service. And that way, you would only need a day pack to carry your water and your lunch and a few extra layers. We definitely recommend doing that. Uh, We actually hiked the first stage with a really heavy pack with laptops and extra shoes, and it was quite miserable. And then when we got to our accommodation in our at the end of the first stage, they said, Oh God, just just do the Vicentina transfers. And we were a little skeptical because, you know, without the backpack, are you hiking? But it was the best decision and really recommend it. I wholeheartedly agree. I did the tour de Mont Blanc with my family and with another family and we did baggage transfer. And <laughs> that is a, a very good decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's I definitely hundred percent recommend it. So you would only need a day pack. This is a hike that has a lot of beach walking, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's a good way to deal with that? 
Yeah. So the, the most important thing is to wear like a high cut hiking boot and then a hiking pant that stretch it with a, an elastic ankle that you can stretch over the boot so that you conceal yourself from sand. A lot of people will get sand in their boots and, and then have blisters, which will make for a really painful journey. It occurred to me that you might try the opposite strategy, which is just go with like sandals or no shoes. Is that something that might work? Possibly. I think that it's, you know, 20 kilometers in sandals. I yeah. don't know how comfortable that would be. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> and what about, what about for food during the day while you're hiking? You definitely want to pack snacks and pack a lunch for every day. The last day, there's an opportunity to eat lunch in a little tiny fishing hamlet along the route. But other than that, you should definitely pack your food and pack your water. There is no place to fill up. I recommend having like two liters of water per person. And um, we purified all our water just to be safe. So we had reusable water bottles and then those aqua tabs. And what about uh, clothing considerations? Yeah, clothing, uh, definitely a rain jacket. If you're hiking anywhere between like November and March, probably a down jacket as well. We used ours. An insulating layer, like a hiking vest. And then, yeah, hike again, those like hiking pants that stretch over the boot. Other than that, like if you're hiking in September and October, that's when the ocean is at its warmest. So definitely bring a swimming suit and a like microfiber towel. Nice. Uh, did you guys swim? We didn't. <laughs> it was no, <laughs> no, we didn't. It was kind. It was kind of chilly, and it yeah. was a bit overcast. And when we hiked, okay. And so I, maybe a little earlier in the yeah. year would have been. Yeah. Okay. And what about a, a map or navigation? Is it, it sounds like, I mean, you're on the coast, so it's probably hard to get completely lost, but um, how did you find your way on the trail? Yeah. So the trail's really intuitive. You're heading south the whole time. There are trail markers and they're fairly well-placed. We didn't, I don't recall having any problems with difficulty or with navigation. Um, we did download the offline maps of this Alentejo Algarve region on Maps Me. So I would recommend that. That way you can just gauge where you are, make sure you're on a trail and you don't need service or data to use it. You can purchase a trail map from the rotavicentina.com website or in Porto Covo. Uh, they, when we looked at the map, it was just like kind of a huge cumbersome piece of paper and we didn't buy it. Probably, um, so I don't, I don't know if you need it. There is now a, is it Cicerone or is it Cicerone or is it? <laughs> yeah, good question. We'll call it Cicerone because we're American. <laughs> Cicerone guidebook that was published in the fall of last year. We didn't know that they had one when we hiked. I would definitely buy it. I really like the maps.me app. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a great app. And I've used that before in trekking and it really does um, make it easy to follow a trail. Yeah. But here there's also these trail markers are very, my understanding is it's pretty well marked and there's these green and teal kind of, I'm forgetting the word, but they're what they call those, the blazes, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, and that, is that pretty easy to, to make sure so every so often you're going to see one of those and know that you're still on the right path? Yeah, definitely. And then there, there are signs that will direct you. Like if there's a part where you have to hike on a beach, there will be a sign that says, now walk on the beach until you get to the fort. I think at some points you will deviate from the coast because they're trying to preserve the habitat along the sand dunes. So you just you just have to be mindful of the waymarks, but it it's quite intuitive. Okay, great. 
And so what about other considerations? And maybe this is Kati's department, but the <laughs> <laughs> insurance and things like that. Like, what do you have to worry about outside of just a map and knowing where you're going and having the right gear? Yeah. And I think insurance, making sure that your travel insurance covers the hike is important. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about <laughs> providers. We were covered by, I think, the Alpenverein, the Alpine Club in Austria. Uh, in terms of budgeting, the guest houses or the hostels are around like 20 euros per person per day. And food is, you know, you can spend next to nothing if you want it on food, but there are some really nice restaurants. So 30 to 40 euros, I think, per person per day. That's not too bad for no. something that's going to not feel like camping. It's going to feel pretty luxurious, yes. especially with nice meals. And how, what's the what's the food like in this part of Portugal? Yeah, so you have a lot of fresh fish that's like just freshly grilled fish. You have a lot of dishes that are like pork with clam. And that's something you should really try. Other than that, yeah, very like kind of Mediterranean style dishes. You also mentioned baggage transfer, and that was Vicentina uh, Transfers is the name of the company you used? Yes, it is. And what is that ballpark? What does that cost? So it is 15 euros for one transfer per person for one bag. But if you book four transfers at the same time, then it is 15 euros for two bags. So if you're just traveling with one other person, the four stages, it's 60 euros for both of you. And then every extra bag is like five euros. So it's a really good deal. Yeah, that's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you guys, I think, took a bus from Lisbon. So first of all, you you were in Austria. How, is, how did you get from Austria to Lisbon? Was that a flight or? Um, so we flew to Porto. And mm -hmm. so we were in Porto for three weeks doing that pet sit. And then we went to Lisbon with a bus. And then from Lisbon, we um, took, went to the Lisbon Sete Rios Terminal. It's a big bus station outside of the city. Just took an Uber there and then took a two to three hour shuttle using Rede Espressos to Porto Covo. That's the most economical way to get there. But you could do a shuttle, like a private shuttle transfer. And the, the uh, Road to Vicentina website has a lot of recommended providers. So if you just wanted an easy shuttle that picks you up from the airport, you could do that. Oh, wow. That's great. That's pretty convenient. And so when you got to Porto Covo, what was the accommodation situation there? Yeah. So there are, you know, Porto Covo is a really small fishing village, village of only like a thousand people. There are a few guest houses and hostels. We stayed in a Hoi Porto Covo hostel and it was directly on the trail. They had private rooms and dormitory rooms, quite convenient. Um, I do want to say if you, you don't have to stay in Porto Covo. So you could, if you took an early morning shuttle, you could arrive in Porto Covo and hike the first stage of the Fisherman's Trail on day one. How long was the first stage take? So like what time would you have to be there by to be able to do that? You want to be there by 10 or 11 in the morning because okay. it's about six and a half hours. And you mentioned that you hiked this trail north to south. Was there a particular reason for that? Or is that sort of the, tr the traditional way it's described or um, yes. what thinking? Yeah, so nor it's north to generally uh, hike north to south because most people are arriving in Lisbon and Puerto Covo is just more accessible. It's also the the association decided to base their communication in one direction. So they wrote the whole trail north to south. So that's why people generally hike it that way. But it's signed in both directions. You can hike it in both directions. Okay, that's good to know. 
And are there any permits required to hike this? No permits. Great. And so what does this area look like? I mean, this is Southern Portugal. It's, it's my understanding is it's not mountainous. It's more sort of rolling hills and fields and stuff like that. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about what this area looks like. Yeah. So you are on the hike follows the Atlantic coast of Southwest Portugal. And I think it is very wild and dramatic and pristine and undeveloped. Uh, you're the whole time in a nature park. The defining feature are the kind of steep cliffs along the coastline, and they're composed mostly of black basalt, dark gray schist, and gray wax sandstone. And these cliffs are like draped in carpets of succulents, and you know, you have sand dunes and long stretches of golden beaches and really beautiful small coves flanked by like cliffs that look like they're slicing the ocean. So it's just like a very rugged, dramatic landscape. Wow, that's that sounds amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm tempted. There's also rivers coming into into the coast from this in this area as well. Mm-hmm, yeah, at, at two points, there are two significant rivers that like flow into the sea. So there's like an estuary type environment. What's the wildlife like there? Is there a lot of birds or other kinds of animals or anything? Yeah, so there there are a lot of birds. Best viewed in spring. We didn't see very many, but we did see a few storks. And this is the only place in the world where white storks nest in the cliffs by the sea. Really? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So what were the storks like? Yeah, we just saw them flying to their nest. And these nests are just massive, huge. And they're, they're like on pillars of stone jutting out of the ocean. It's quite something. Wow. Along the coast, I've heard that there are actually some fortresses. And what's, what are those like? Yeah, so the fortresses are, they're few, and they were built in the 16th century and the early 17th to protect the villages from pirate attacks. Wow. So that's, that's something interesting to look out for. And did you, were you able to stop at any of those or was it just sort of scenery along the way? Yeah, th- well, what the first one is, um, fortress we saw is just outside of Porto Covo and it's abandoned. And then the second fortress is in Villanova del Mifontes. And here it is not open to the public, but you do, you definitely see it. Were there any particular towns along the way that you really liked or that were a favorite of yours? I think scenically, Zambugera do Mar is the most marvelous. You have, um, I mean, the, all these villages are whitewashed with terracotta roofs, but this one's just like hovering on top of the cliffs and it is just a dramatic scene. I really also loved Villanova because of the dinner we had there. So not for the scenery, but from, from the food. Yes, the food was excellent. Okay. <laughs> All right. So why don't, we, why don't we jump into the itinerary and let's talk about what the, each of the stages is about. So on the first day, you've got uh, Porto Covo to uh, Villanova. Uh, tell me about that day. Yeah. So this is a 20-kilometer stage. It takes six and a half hours. Um, it is said to be the most difficult because the entire day you're either hiking on sand dunes or you're hiking on the beach. The trail clings to the coast the whole time. So you're passing above long stretches of beach or like small coasts. It gets increasingly more dramatic. So after the beach Malhau, it gets even more rugged. You will pass a fort and that's the built in 1588. 
an hour south of Puerto Cobo, and the fort is located just opposite an island. And this island was has actually ruins from the Carthaginians dating back to the third century BC and Roman ruins as well. Wow. But that's out on an island. That's out on an island. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can you actually see the ruins from the coast? A little bit, but I think the the ruins you see are not the Carthaginian or the Roman ruins. I think they might be from a fortress built in the 16th century. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's 20 kilometers, which is 12 and a half miles. And at the end of that day, you end up in Villa Nova. And what are what's the situation there with accommodations and dining and all of that? Yeah, so we booked an accommodation in a place called Casa de Era. And this was a lovely bed and breakfast, very kind management. And they were really helpful. They're the ones who helped us book our transfer service. And they're the ones that actually booked us a table at this restaurant called Tasca de Salso. And we recommend anyone hiking this trail to make a reservation there in advance. We were lucky to get the last table there that night. They turned away a lot of people out of the restaurant. So it is a tavern. It is slow eating. Like the meals take some time, but it is, yeah, it's atmospheric and you get really, really delicious fish. And this is where you should try the dish. This is the Alentejo clams and pork dish. Okay. Is that like a a local delicacy, a local traditional food? Mm -hmm, That's a local specialty. And you'll find that on every menu probably, but it it was really good there. Wow. Okay. And then day two, day two is from Villanova to, I'm going to say it wrong probably, but Almograve? I think, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me about day two. Yeah. So day two, so Villanova is actually located on the mouth of the river Mira. And so the traditional fisherman's trail will go inland and cross the river over a bridge. But you can cut out that kind of boring segment by just crossing the river on a ferry. And the ferry like takes off from right below Forte de Sao Clemente. And that's that fort that was built to protect the village from the pirates after the whole village was destroyed. So the ferry boat is, it's small. The ferry ride takes just a few minutes. It's five euros per person. You cross the the river and then the trail starts inland. But then once you get to the coast again, it's, I think what, what we noticed was like more color in the cliffs. So a lot of like ochre and sienna colors in the sandstone. You see fossilized sand dunes and more volcanic rock. It's a beautiful stage. And so that is, so I looked it up or maybe it was from your website that it said it was 15 and a half kilometers. Is that oh, yeah. using the, is that the traditional route or is that with the ferry? That is with the ferry. Yeah. And is the ferry, is this a car ferry or is this actually even smaller where it's just a person ferry? Oh, it's just a person ferry. It's a tiny boat. It fits probably like six people. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's about nine and a half miles. All right. So what were accommodations like at the end of that day? So yeah, again, you have guest houses and hostels. We play, we stayed in a place called Amodgrav Beach Hostel, which has like a self-check-in nice, lovely kitchen and beautiful rooms with like very whimsical beds, uh, bed frames, really lovely. And you can opt here for breakfast isn't included, but you can pay an an additional like six or seven euros and have breakfast, which is generally more relaxing if you're, you get breakfast tied in with your accommodation. Otherwise, like you don't know when the cafes are opening and the Portuguese aren't really breakfast people. So 
<laughs> so you might not be eating unless you get at your hotel. Yeah. I mean, you pr- probably can get a coffee and like a tiny pastry, but better to have okay. it. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of another question I had, which is when for the lunches for the day, are you packing a lunch that you buy at a grocery store or are you basically getting them from your hostel or your hotel and taking it to go from there? Oh, yeah. So every every town, there are like a few little grocery shops or little markets. And so we would just buy bread and cheese and yeah, generally make our own lunch. Okay. And then so what's day three like? Oh, and before I, we get into day three, I just went. Sure. So day um and Almograv, the, there's a beautiful beach called Praia Grande, which is just like five or seven minutes outside of the town. And you want to catch sunset there. It's really beautiful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right. And then day three, what's that like? Okay. So day three is, you know, Almograv to Zambujera do Mar. It's a 22 kilometer stage. It takes about six hours to hike. It is so initially you're you go to that really beautiful bre- beach outside of Almograv, Praia Grande, you walk along the coast and then you end up you come to a small fishing village and then the trail eventually goes inland to a tiny coastal town or not it's not an inland town called Cal- Cavallero. Here you'll find a snack bar. We actually sat down in a snack bar and like no one served us. <laughs> and we were just we we got tired of waiting so we we kept walking and ate what we had in our backpacks but yeah you could potentially eat here but then the trail goes back to the coast and this is where we saw a lot of the storks and the stork nests so mm -hmm, it's really beautiful and you follow the coast all the way to a fishing hamlet called Entrada de Barcas and here is a restaurant or tiny like fishing shed restaurant called Osaka's we were told to eat here. Unfortunately, it was closed in November. So uh, if we come back, we'll, we'll eat there. But yeah, people love it there. And then from this tiny fishing hamlet, there's a paved road and you follow the paved, like the side of the paved road for a few kilometers. This is really boring, but it does end well because after walking along this paved road, you'll see a trail sign directing you right and you go follow this coastal path along the headlands. And this leads you right into Zambujera Domar. And here you have probably the most striking and beautiful view of the entire trek because of the village and then these huge basalt uh, cliffs that are just like slashing into the ocean. Oh, wow. So you're kind of up above the ocean at this point, looking from the cliffs. Yeah, you're, you're on the headlands on cliffs and then you're looking. Yeah, you have a great vantage point of the village. Oh, neat. And I think I saw, so where did you stay uh, at this stage for, for the evening? I think you, I saw that you stayed slightly out of the town. Is that right? Yeah. So we stayed in a place called Monte das Alpendoradas. And this is a great place if you're doing a road trip in Alentejo, but not a great place for this hike. Uh, we did get a, a pickup from the accommodation and a drop off. So it worked out for us, but there's no need to make it complicated. I recommend just staying directly in the town. Okay, great. And are there particular places in the town that you're aware of that people should look into? Or is it pretty obvious, only one or two places? I think there are, there are several. Oh, okay. Nature Hostel looks really nice for like kind of a budget-friendly accommodation. And then another place, if you have a, want to spend a little bit more money, called Azul. Okay, great. All right. And then what is the last day like, day four? 
Day four from Zambujera do Mar to Odisesh and is when you cross into, you'll eventually at the end cross into the Algov region. So this whole time you've been in Alentejo um, and now you're going into the Algov. It has the most notable ascents and descents. So you'll actually feel like you're going uphill and downhill at some points. The trail begins, you're, you know, you're leaving the town and definitely just, you have to look back because the, the village is just basking in the warm, you know, morning sun and it's beautiful. Um, you're following the coast all the way to a sandy beach called Praia do Carvalhal. And there's a snack bar here. It was also closed in November. (laughs) 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 But um, from here, the the trail goes inland and it actually wraps around a safari park or like an enclosure of zebras and ostriches and other animals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really kind of a a surprise to see these animals. And then after like wrapping around, I just remember there were some really narrow passages along this interior route where um, it was just overgrown. So maybe they've trimmed it by now but we were just like you know had our hands above our face and like <laughs> going a little bushwhacking yeah a little bushwhacking and then so the the trail then returns to the coast and it brings you to a little fishing hamlet called Azenha Domar here there are two restaurants you definitely should eat fresh fish um in one of these places and then it continues all the way until the cliff ends and what you see is the river Seisha or Sesh, not sure how to pronounce it. And it is spilling into the ocean. So it is just like kind of like snaking its way around the beautiful Odisesh beach and then joining the ocean. And you see across from you a few white buildings. And this is this is part of Odisesh, but not the village you're gonna sleep in. The village you sleep in is a little bit inland, right? Yeah, it's further inland. So once you you're at this lookout point, you'll eventually head inland, descend to the river, hike four kilometers by the river inland to, and then cross it over a bridge into Odisesh. Okay. And what were, did you stay in Odisesh? We did. Um, we stayed in a hostel and I think it's a great place for like 18, 19, 20 year olds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it has like a nice surfing hippie vibe, but it was, there's, it wasn't really well soundproofed. So I think I would um, stay at a guest house with a little bit more privacy. I have to ask you the name of the place that you that you're talking about that we stayed in. Yeah, I th- Hostel Sesh. Okay, Hostel Sesh. So that's the one that's. I was like, how do you read that? And I was hoping I was hoping it wasn't hostel, or maybe I was hoping it was like hostel sexy or something. I don't know <laughs> because it looks like that, it looks like that in English. But yeah, when I when I was first, so when we were actually in Puerto Covo and we were talking to the the manager of our hostel, I was, we went through the whole map with him and I was kept on saying, Oda sexy. And he, <laughs> I think I really embarrassed, well, I obviously embarrassed myself. So I think it's Oda Sesh or Oda Sesha or some, something like that. Yeah. Well, I was thinking the name should have been a giveaway that was probably for younger, younger people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so what, where, what are other options do you think there for people to say? Other options, the Bohemian Antique Guest House looks really uh, nice and the Casa de Moinho. Okay. And then so after staying there, how do you get back to Lisbon? Is there a bus that you can take from Odesesh? Yeah. So there's also a Rede Espresso shuttle bus that takes you back to Lisbon. What we did is we continued our journey to Lagos and um, we took another shuttle there, which is like an hour and 
Lagos is on the south coast of the Algarve. And this is, you know, it's quite a shock. You go from like this very like genuine, authentic, not touristic place in Portugal. And then you go to the most touristic place of Portugal. But it's also beautiful and it is worth seeing uh, because they have this coastline is defined by very beautiful orange limestone cliffs. So if you haven't been to that place, this would be, it would be easy to connect the two destinations. Okay. So you, <clears throat> that's actually interesting to hear about because it's, that's great to know that the most of this hike or this entire hike for the four days that you did is really authentic Portugal. It's not, it's not a touristy area. It sounds like these are really fishing villages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you come in July and August, then you'll have a different perspective because it will be all the Portuguese tourism will be gravitating to this part of the coast. Because it's warm in the beaches. Warm in the beaches. And then Portuguese don't like Southern Algarve because that's where the Brits go. And that's where... So Southern Algarve is really touristy for people, international tourists. Yeah, it's like one of the most famous beach holiday destinations in Europe. It is. And and I mean, for a lot of people, it's obnoxious, right? It's lots of tacky tourist shops. And the, the coast is highly developed, unlike, you know, this Vicentina coast where there is no development and it, it's all part of a nature park. It's all preserved. And you, you just don't see, you know, civilization and you don't have, there's no human influence or little. Okay. So there's a big contrast. Are there other side trips or things close by that people should think about? Like, you know, they've gone all the way to the coast of Portugal. Mm -hmm. Are there other things they might want to see that they could get to from here that you you can think of? Or basically, you know, Portugal's not that big to begin with. I guess they could spend some time in Lisbon or other places, but. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Well, I mean, once you get to um, Odessesh, you could actually continue then hiking the route. Uh, Okay. So I would consider, I mean, we'd love to go back and do the Fisherman's Trail again. And I think what we would do is continue all the way to Cabo St. Vincent or Cape St. Vincent and hike another three or four stages. But other than that, I think the main, yeah, the main destination would be get get to Lagos. And even Lagos is kind of, is, is popular, is touristic. But if you can get on a train or on a shuttle to a place like Ferragudo, um, that's our favorite place in the Algarve. It's a very beautiful fishing village. Then you can still get a feeling for this region, but without all the masses. Oh, that's a really good tip. Yeah, I like that. That sounds good. And so how is the, just a question that occurred to me is how is the Algarve different from the, I forget the name of the region that you start in, but for how are those two regions different if they are? The only time that you're in the Algarve for this hike is when you cross that river over the bridge into Odessesh. So you're only okay. in Algarve in Odessesh. I didn't notice a difference between Odessesh and the other villages. Um, it, okay. is, it is a popular surfing village. A lot of people come in summer to learn how to surf there. But other than that, okay. yeah. So at the end of this, I mean, it sounds like you're you're actually thinking about going back. So you must have liked, liked it. Yeah. Why is this a trail that people should do? Why is this one worth doing? Just incredible rugged coastal scenery and the solitude, you know, there, I mean, when we hiked, there were just no people other than of course the fishermen who are using the trails. I mean, that's why the, the trail itself was created in 2013, but the trails were used by the fishermen for decades to access the best fishing spots. So yeah, just generally, if you want like to be one with the ocean, you know, 
and not (laughs) and have like a really cool hiking experience then yeah we recommend it is there a particular thing you love most about it like a, a moment that stands out for you or a location or anything that you that really sticks with you the most beautiful scene was the one of the zambujera domar that was probably the one that i just keep thinking about of course dinner in that tasca de celso yeah just overall it's it's just the feeling like of hiking along the ocean for six hours at a time. You just feel cleansed. You feel like refreshed and born anew. Was there anything that happened that you didn't expect? Like, was there any surprises on this trip? No surprises. I think we were, well, other than the weather. Uh, so it was humid. It was really humid. and that. But was, it didn't rain. It did rain a little bit. Oh, just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and it, I mean, for us, it, it was always like a storm was brewing somewhere, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, I mean, we wore a rain jacket more for the wind than for the rain. It must be brutal in the summer if it was humid in November. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you would have done differently? I think you mentioned something earlier, but I've forgotten what it was now. Is there something you would have done differently that you learned on the trip? Yeah. I would have booked the luggage transfer from the onset. Okay. Yeah. Just because it was just a really convenient service. Why carry all that stuff if you don't need to? So convenient, reliable. You know, as soon as you get into your accommodation, your bags are waiting for you. It's just, there's no point in carrying it. <laughs> and this trip is, sounds like very different than most of the trips that you and Kadi are doing in the Alps. So yeah. was, there, was, that, was, that, um, was there a particular thing that made this trip special for you guys? Yeah, I mean, just being by the ocean, you know, four days. I mean, we've, we're mostly in the like landlocked Austria. so. We love being, I mean, and I grew up in California on the coast. So yeah, just love being by the ocean. So thank you so much for telling me about this hike. And on your blog, Moon and Honey Travel, you have a post that goes into a lot of detail about the Rota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail. And uh, folks should, should definitely check that out and they can get a full itinerary and, and more detail than we talked about here. And if they want to hike the trail, they'll have a, a great guide for them there. Before we go, though, I want to talk about another post that you guys had on your website. You had a post called uh, Best Treks in Europe, Multi-Day Hiking Adventures Off the Beaten Path. And this was, I think, the first post I found on your website, and I really enjoyed it. And you know, I think I mentioned I've hiked the Tour de Mont Blanc, and which is the hike that everybody and their mother has hiked. Even though it's a beautiful, fantastic hike, it is also a very crowded hike. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was really exciting to see that there were all these trails that I had just never heard of. So tell us a little bit about that post and how you put it together and sort of what you were thinking about as, you know, what you were including on that list. Yeah, sure. So the post comprises a lot of hut-to-hut hiking trails that we've done in the Alps and outside of the Alps, but they're all three or more days long. Um, They're all, I would say, internationally not well-known and accessible with public transit. And yeah, the accommodation along the trail is always, always either a hut or like in the Fisherman's Trail, for example, a guest house or a hostel. So we don't camp. We don't see the point in camping in Europe because you don't need to. (laughs) So so all of these treks are essentially hut to hut. And so some of the routes on in this list are actually routes that you guys created. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that. What were you, what was the thinking going on there as far as like deciding, look, let's do this route instead of the one that's the more traditional. Was it a matter of not having the time for a longer route or was it just preference or what, how did that come about? 
Yeah, sure. So like, for example, in Slovenia, there are a lot of established hiking routes that are 30 days long. And we wanted to just get to know like one hiking, one mountain range at a time and basically string together the highlights of the range into one singular route in like four or five days. So what we did is, for example, in Slovenia is we did a trek across the Triglau National Park in the Julian Alps. And then we did one across the Kamnik Savinia Alps. And both are four days long, both are high alpine, and I think both really capture the best parts of those ranges. So that's great. So you, you've actually sort of condensed these areas and found what are really the highlights. And if people want to look at this post, they'll get, they can have some ideas for places that can really, you know, most folks doing 30 stages or something is not something they have time for. So yeah. this would be an opportunity to really see some highlights. Mm-hmm, definitely. Of the routes that you guys put together, is there one that stands out that if you were going to, you know, person said, which one should I do of the ones that you guys came up Mm -hmm. with, uh, which one would you tell them to do? Well, we get the most emails, questions, feedback, um, outreach for the Triglau National Park Traverse one. So the one that starts in Vrsic Pass and ends in Lake Bohin, we get, I mean, I just can't count how many emails (laughs) we've received of people like wanting to know if it is as hard as Tour de Mont Blanc. And <laughs> uh, okay. And we really do need to hike that trek, I have to say, because everyone will always ask us to compare it. Yeah, right. Because that's what people know. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I didn't ask you to compare it, but yes, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm almost there. <laughs> okay. And so these are, if you're just thinking outside of the ones that you guys created, or maybe including those as well, what, what hike of the ones you've done in the Alps, whether from this post or just in general, would you recommend that someone who's new to the Alps, who's never been to the Alps, what's a good sort of introduction to the Alps? I think in terms of just getting used to hiking, you know, doing a long distance hike in mountainous terrain, the Alta Via 1 in the Italian Dolmates is just a great starting place. And that's actually a fairly popular route, right? That is actually the most popular route on our list. Yeah. People know. Yes. That's the only one. I think that was the only one I had heard of yeah. on the list. Okay. And what about for somebody who's really experienced in the mountains? Is there, is there one route here that's like really challenging and beautiful that someone who who is a good, you know, a lot of miles under their feet in the mountains should be a good thing for them to try to do? Sure. So I would do any of the high trails in Austria. So, and they're called in German, Hünweg high trails. So the Berlin high trail, the Karwendel high trail. And for someone who has tons of hiking experience and is a confident alpinist, then the Eagle Walk is really interesting. So the Eagle Walk is a 30-stage hike that traverses the Austrian state of Tyrol. We hiked the last six stages through the Lechthaler Alpen. This was sometimes excruciating. I mean, it was hard, but it was beautiful and totally worth it and feels like an achievement. So that I think the Eagle Walk for someone who's like, you know, really confident. Otherwise, oh, I mean, for all of these high trails, you should be kind of um, familiar or confident hiking with along secured routes. So you don't need any extra equipment. You don't need like a whole Via Ferrata set, but you're using, you know, cables, fixed cables and steps at certain points. But they're all, they're all, they're already there. You're just accessing yeah. stuff that's already set for you. Exactly. Yeah. If anything, okay. it makes it even easier. Okay. Is there one route that you've hiked that you like so much that you'd want to go back? We talked about the Fisherman's Mm -hmm. Trail, of course, but are there routes in the Alps, for example, that you'd love to do again? You have a favorite? I think we want to do, well, there are two. So there's the Schladminga Tauern in Styria in Austria. And Styria is just not, 
like it is not so well known internationally. You know, Salzburg and Tyrol are, is get, what gets all the press and all the attention. Styria is like, I don't know, it, it's really genuine and there's great food. People are so friendly. The hike we did there passes by so many alpine lakes. Yeah, I think I said the food was really good. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, I'm detecting a theme here for you. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that, that's really important. So actually, the hikes that we included in the list, the food has to be great. Because if the food isn't great, then that's, that's a big part of the experience. So we left off a really famous, well, not famous hike in Europe called the Venetica High Trail because we thought the food was horrible. So it didn't make it to our list. That is amazing. You guys actually cut a hike from the list, not based on the scenery or the <laughs> hut, but based purely on the food not being good enough. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> is there a route that's not on this list that you think people should do that are kind of in the same vein, but you just didn't include for some reason? Well, we have a few two-day hikes on, on the blog, and one of them is the hike to the summit of Mount Triglau, the highest mountain in Slovenia. We did the easiest approach ascent route. So I think that's a great hike to do for anyone visiting Slovenia who has some Via Ferrata experience, but not in July or August outside of those two months. Just because it's too crowded? Way too crowded. Yeah. Okay. And what about hikes that you still haven't even done yet that are on your list that you think this is something that people should really be thinking about just because you've heard so much about it? In the regions that we know well. So we really would love to do the Altavia 2 in the Italian Dalmates. It's more challenging than the Altavia 1. And it, we've actually been on it a lot on various day hikes. And we're just always impressed by the scenery. And then in Austria, we'd love to do the Stubai High Trail. And then the Emperor's Crown in the Vilde Kaiser. Um, that's another one on our bucket list. And then as far as destinations, really curious about the Algoy region the Algoy Alps straddle the Bavaria and Tyrol. So it's like in Germany okay. and Austria. Oh, interesting. And so these routes, as you just mentioned, they sometimes straddle different countries. There's a lot of different cultures crossing here. You've got Austria and Germany and Slovenia and all these other places, Italy. Have you noticed going through these different regions and hiking in different places that there are cultural differences that are exciting to see or different foods or different things that struck your attention um, among the peoples of the different places? Yeah, sure. So one thing that stands out to me, and I think it's because I'm from California. I mean, anyone from North America really has a certain expectation of how people will interact on a trail or like you're used to people making conversation, maybe joking about something, being motivating or simply just, I don't know, wanting to have some type of connection and certain etiquette, right? I think we're used to in the Alps, I would say people and, and Europeans writ large are a bit more reserved on the trail. They're still polite, but you'll see differences between the, the different regions. So like in Slovenia, for example, people hiking by you will smile. They say Doberdan, but then they're out of sight. Like they are fast. They're athletic. They're honestly, of all the hikers we've encountered, the Slovenians are the most athletic and badass. Like, you know, if they ask, if you ask a Slovenian if something's hard, They'll say nothing. They'll say hard. no. Yes. <laughs> never, never ask a Slovenian, a Slovenian if something's hard because that's how we almost got into big trouble a couple of times. They said, no, it's not hard. And it was like, I was crying. That is memorable advice. Never ask a Slovenian <laughs> if something's hard. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we love Slovenians. Okay. And then the um, Italians, 
definitely more talkative on the trail, but without a fault, they will always ask us when, like how much longer it is to the next refugio. So we don't really understand them, <laughs> but we'll hear refugio and we know all they want to know is like, when are they getting to the hut? And yeah. I would say generally, Italians are not always fully aware of who's behind them. So you've got to be a little bit more vocal or to like kind of get around them <laughs> if they're traveling in groups. Austrians are more reserved, but in the mountain huts, once they have a few schnapps, they are like lively. And I would save all the, I don't know, Alpine states. They're the coziest. They love drinking, eating, talking. They're just very gemütlich is the German word. And you, you can't go to an Austrian hut without not drinking a schnapps. Like it's just part of the experience. And then the Germans. Now we haven't really hiked a lot in Germany, but most of the time we're hiking, we're around Germans and they are, I would say the most competitive on the trail. Competitive um, hikers. They're, huh? <laughs> they're, they're competitive. They will like, they don't want to let you pass. So you've got to be a bit pushy <laughs> if you want to pass them. And they'll often like ask you like, oh, like how long did it take to get to the hut? They want to know that they were faster than you. So <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make a stereotype, but that's happened like more than once, more than twice. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so what about a favorite region or town or places in the Alps that do you have something that really stands out for you that you've just really fell in love with? Yeah. So my favorite region is South Tyrol in Northern Italy. South Tyrol is part of Austria prior to World War I. It's a beautiful fusion of Austrian culture, Italian culture, and Latin. Latin are the like the, the historic and original inhabitants of this mountainous region. And oh, wow. so when you're in South Tyrol in some valleys, you have signage in three languages. So it gets really confusing, confusing sometimes. Every town, every mountain has three names. But this is also, you know, this is the Italian Dolomites. And I'm, I am partial to limestone Dolomite mountains. But here, it's just, they're just splendid. Every mountain looks different. At sunset, they, they glow like crimson. It is just a magical, magnificent place that everyone should go to immediately. <laughs> okay, that is good advice. I will do that. I'm going to be leaving tomorrow. No, except that I can't, I can't go anywhere now during the pandemic. All right, so that's, that's really interesting. And I love hearing about these hikes. So for folks who want to check out the post on that, it's Best Treks in Europe, Multi-Day Hiking Adventures Off the Beaten Path. While I have you, I've got a few more questions just to get a little bit more insight on Sabrina. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what is one piece of gear you don't leave home without when you go trekking? A category four sunglasses. What does that mean? What is category four? Sunglasses have cat. There's cat one, cat two, cat three, cat four. Four gives you the most protection. And okay. yeah, I've learned the hard way having cheaper sunglasses makes my eyes really dry and tired. So category four polarized sunglasses are really important. Okay. What about what is the best hut you've ever stayed in? Okay. Two. Um, Tirza Alpel in South Tyrol, South Tyrol in the Rosengarten Dolomites. This is a very modern, oh, beautiful hut, exquisite half board menu, just beautiful scenery. This was the first hut we ever stayed in. So I think it has a special place in my heart. Another hut. Wait, so which, yeah. which, wait, which trail is that? Which hike is that on? So we've been there twice. The first time was we just did an out and back hike to this hut. The second time we actually kind of designed 
a trek to come here. And that was the Rosengarten, Rosengarten okay. <laughs> Traverse, or in Italian, it's the Catenaccio Mountains. Because okay. this, is, this is also South Tyrol, where they have two or three different names. Oh, okay, great. And then you were going to mention another one. Yeah, the other one is the Berliner Hütte, or the Berlin Hut. And this is in the Zillertal Alps, along the Berlin High Trail in Tyrol, in Austria. And it is it is just a beautiful structure. It looks like like an old hunting lodge. You have high ceilings, chandeliers, staircase. Like it is a grand, grand hut. That's cool. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> All right. A couple more questions. What is hiking food you could eat every day? Okay. So when I'm in Austria, I like to always order Kaiserschmann and that's like a shredded pancake dish with powdered sugar and rum soaked raisins. Wow. Yeah, it's good. But that's not something that's probably not available every day, but that's something you would eat it every day if you could. Oh, in Austrian huts, it's available in almost every hut every day. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a nice feature of a, every <laughs> hut to have that. <laughs> All right. And then last question, what is the dumbest thing you've ever done when you went trekking or hiking? So the dumbest thing that we've done is to hike or to ascend when it started to snow in the mountains. Um, it, we ended up in a whiteout in a snow blizzard, couldn't see where we were going. All the way marks and the footpath and the footprints were covered in snow. So never ascend when it's snowing. What did you end up doing? Did you retreat or did you have to, how did you deal with it? So we luckily... <laughs> This was like, this is on the Altavia one as we were approaching the Lagatsoi hut. There are all these like World War One caves along the route. And so we got like in a cave kind of in a tunnel and um, we were able to pull up Maps knee. And I mean, at this point, my hands were shaking. Kati's lips were blue. We were crying and thinking we were going to die. But Maps me did not fail us. And <laughs> and then we were able to keep going. But we there were there were minutes where we just did not know where to go. So you fall, so that is, those are two cool things you just said. One is that you retreated into a cave. That mm -hmm. is so cool. <laughs> are these natural, natural caves or they were built for soldiers in the war? Yeah. So they, they were built caves that were yeah built to shelter the soldiers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then also you basically used your GPS and just kept going and followed the GPS and that allowed you to get to the hut. Yeah, exactly. And we were like, I think we were 10 feet from the hut and we didn't see the hut because of the snow. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was right there. Yeah, um, yeah we were yeah. like, yeah, we weren't far. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's a little scary, but it sounds like you you handled it pretty well. Yeah. And this was, I mean, we we were lucky because this hut had a outdoor sauna. So we stripped down and then we like, they had, they provide bathrobes and towels. I mean, this is the Dolomites, you know, <laughs> and we got into the sauna and, it was really, it was amazing. It, we warmed up and um, had a bottle of wine. And actually, you know, it was really funny. I have to tell you this. When we arrived in this hut, we, you know, we were like thinking we almost died. We heard a group of Americans drinking wine loud, of course. And we're like, what? Why are they, how are they here? Like we passed them three hours ago on the trail. Of course, what they did was they exited the trail, took a taxi, and then, <laughs> and then took a cable car up to, to the hut. So they were really smart and just said, fuck it, we're not going to hike this trail and we're just going to do it the easy way. So that they were smart. And I was, yeah. 
that's one of those moments you like, you know you're trekking in Europe when, yeah. when you can take a taxi and a cable car to get to the hut. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of places that's not available. Yeah. But yeah, in Europe it is. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, that is cool. Thank you so much, uh, Sabrina Brett, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And it was fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and I hope that Sabrina and I have inspired you to hike the road to Vicentina Fisherman's Trail. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense, and when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we preview our next episode, I want to remind you about Outdoor Herbivore, at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Outdoor Herbivore makes great backpacking meals. As we get closer to the spring and more places are available for backpacking, it's time to start buying some supplies and Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount at Outdoor Herbivore. The discount code is TWH10P. I believe it's all capital letters, so that's Trails worth hiking 10%, TWH10P, to get 10% off your order of delicious and filling backpacking meals that have plenty of calories, can be quickly prepared with by pouring boiling water into the packaging, and there are lots of great options. So take a look at their website and order some food for the backpacking season. All right, let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking... We go to the edge of one of the greatest empires in history, Rome. As Rome's empire grew, it expanded beyond the Mediterranean region. By the end of the first century AD, the empire had conquered a considerable portion of what is today Great Britain, but not all of it. Those pesky tribes that lived in the northern part of the island, in what is today Scotland, were never subdued by the Romans. Eventually, in the early 2nd century AD, the Emperor Hadrian acknowledged that reality by building a wall all the way across Britain, a wall that marked the farthest reach of the Roman Empire. Today, trekkers can hike the length of the ruins of that wall and take in the almost 2,000 years of history it has to offer. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Hadrian's Wall path through the countryside of northern England. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 